0: We'll open your Bibles with me, if you would, to the book of Revelation. This morning we'll be looking at Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. And while we will not go through the entire book of Revelation expositionally, we do want to take a snapshot of these messages that were written to seven historical churches that have been recorded for us. As we think about the book of Revelation, one of the things that most people recognize is that it is a very challenging book, on many levels. Now, the book is widely regarded to be written by the Apostle John while on the island of Patmos around the year 90 A.D. As you look at the book of Revelation, it is a book of prophecy, yet it also contains an historical element as John is writing to actual churches that existed in his day. And while on the island of Patmos, John receives a revelation or a vision that is unlike anything he has ever experienced in his life, remembering that he walked with Jesus, he saw the miracles, he was inspired by God to write the Gospel of John as well as John 1, 2, and 3 that we find in our Bibles today. But what he receives in this vision is remarkably different from anything he's ever experienced before. The book is a mixture of figurative and literal language, and it can sometimes be difficult to discern the difference between the two, which can lead to differences in interpretation and in application. These images that John sees are so unique that John really is unable to describe them. And so he often uses the phrase, quote, I saw it and it was like, or I heard it and it was like, meaning he did his very best to describe what it was he saw and what it was that he heard. For example, in the opening chapter, Revelation 110 we see that John writes, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet. In Revelation 113, he goes on to explain what he saw. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man. And then describing the son of man that he sees in Revelation 115, he says his feet were like burnished bronze. When it has been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. Now it's unlikely that the feet of the man he saw were actually made of burnished bronze, and it's unlikely that the voice he heard was the sound of water, but the imagery is rich and full and has significant meaning, and John does his very best to describe what he sees the best way, That he knows how. Now, our focus over the next few weeks will be to look at the historical message that was written to the seven churches that are identified in Revelation 1:11. The church in Ephesus, the church in Smyrna, the church in Pergamum, the church in Thyatira, the church in Sardis, the church in Philadelphia, and lastly, the church in Laodicea. Now, the messages to these churches are as real today as they were then, and in each of these messages, there will be a consistent outline with just a few minor differences. Now, what you and I need to remember today is this. What is said about these churches in the year 90 AD or thereabouts can be true of an entire church. It can be true of a portion of the church, but what is said is always said to the individual's that make up the church. So you and I will likely find ourselves and our walk with the Lord described somewhere in these verses, and we would do well to take to heart what is said. So let's begin with the church in Ephesus, focusing this morning on Revelation 2: 1 through 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, it says this. I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate evil men, and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false. And you have perseverance, excuse me, you have perseverance and have endurance for my name's sake, and have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore, Remember from where you have fallen, and repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you and will will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And then lastly in verse 7, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So as we follow along in our outline, Roman number 1, we're going to see the messenger. Verse 1, To the angel of the Lord in Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this. So the angel or the stars, would be the elders or the pastors. It would be applicable to those who are responsible for leading the church, the ones who set the pace and set the tone. They set the example for the church spiritually. The second thing we see in the messenger are the lampstands. The lampstands represent the churches to whom John is speaking. So each of these churches is represented in the seven lampstands, That the Lord Himself is holding. And so, as we see this description, as we hear this message, what this does is it affirms His sovereignty. The sovereignty of the Lord, who holds the lampstands in His hands, is the one to whom the churches are hearing from. God alone has ultimate authority that He displays in His divine universal rule through the person of Jesus Christ. Now we would read in Colossians 1, verses 15 through 19, He is the image, Jesus, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church, and He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that He Himself will come to have first place in everything, for it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him. If there is ever any debate about the person of Jesus Christ and Him being equal to God and Him being the one who rules over the universe, these verses clearly dispel the inaccuracy that can be communicated differently from what these verses say. The one who holds the lampstands is sovereign over the entire universe. And hear this, and most especially his church. So Jesus holds the church universal in his hands which is represented in him holding the golden lampstand. Now, number 2 in our outline, his commendation. Now, it's always good to hear a commendation, the good things that the Lord sees in our lives. And there are good things that he sees in the church at Ephesus. And undoubtedly, the Lord would see good things at some level in virtually every New Testament church today. But here's what he says in verses 2 and 3. He says, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate evil men. And you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not. And you found them to be false, and you have persevered. Perseverance and have endured for my namesake and have not grown weary. Now in these two verses, Jesus identifies seven things that he knows about this church that are a part of his commendation to them. He oppresses upon them that he is intimately acquainted with them. He is not inattentive. He is not too busy. He is not distracted. Jesus knows what is taking place in the life of his church and in the lives of his children. He knows both good and bad what we do, not what they profess, not what their intentions are, not the resolutions that they make, but what it is they actually do. So the seven things that Jesus identifies about the church of Ephesus as a part of the commendation, number one, their work for him. This is represented by the word deeds, And it is an all-encompassing term that would include all things that the people of this church are doing in service to the Lord, and I am sure that there were many. Number two, he commends them for their struggles. This is communicated in the word toil. So it isn't always easy to serve the Lord. There is often resistance that comes from our service to the Lord, whether it's internal or external, but he recognizes that there is struggles in their service to him. Thirdly, he commends them for their endurance. The endurance here is representative of perseverance it is not giving up, it is not giving in, it is maintaining a forward movement. He sees this and he commends them for this. Number four, he commends them for their holy standard. This is identified by the phrase, they cannot tolerate evil men. Now, it shouldn't have to be said, but the church and Christians should have no tolerance for evil or evil people In their lives, we should not be best friends that those that would be care as those characterized as evil, according to the word of God. So they Jesus sees their holy standard and he commends them for their intolerance to those who live and think and act like evil individuals. Number five, he commends them for their discernment. This is the testing of those who claim to be apostles. Through spiritual discernment, through the evaluation of the lives an individual lives, through what it is they teach as it is consistent or inconsistent with the Word of God, we can discern that they are either true or they are false, and what it is that they say and what it is that they do. Number six, he commends them for their stand for Christ. He says that they have endured for his name. Now, there isn't any particular persecution that is to be stated about the church in Ephesus, but any church that is serious about serving the Lord, engaging the lost culture around them, standing for truth against evil, there is going to be some kind of persecution that comes, whether it be individually or corporately, but they have endured for His name's sake, meaning that they are not relenting in their stand for Christ. Number seven, He commends them, For their faithfulness, very similar to endurance, where he says they have not grown weary. You know, it's really easy to grow weary in our service for the Lord when it feels like a struggle, when it feels like there's more resistance than we can tolerate, when we aren't willing to fight the fight. It's very easy to quit, to give up, to take a break. But Jesus sees within this church at Ephesus their faithfulness and that in the midst of persecution, in the midst of hardship, they are continuing and not growing weary. Now, each of these elements of commendation are pleasing to the Lord. They are, the things, they are things the church can be proud of as they have been obedient to do what they know to do. And they have attempted to live out their faith in some kind of an authentic way. But all is not well in the church at Ephesus. Roman numeral 3, we see his rebuke. Verse 4 says, But I have this against you, you have left your first love. Now after listing all of the things that Jesus would commend the church for, he identifies the glaring weakness, the glaring deficiency that exists within the life of the church at Ephesus, that they have left their first love. The word left here means to abandon or to forsake. It is, in a sense, to walk away from this affection that they have towards the Lord Jesus Christ. But you might ask yourself this question, how could they abandon their first love with all the good things that they're doing in service to the Lord people would argue and say but look at my work for you and my struggles for you and my endurance and service to you and my holy standard my discernment my stand for you in this world and in this culture my faithfulness to you what about all of that well while Jesus would commend them for their faithfulness and their good deeds and their service it is not at the heart of what Jesus really wants from us, and that is our heart. We must always be aware of self-righteous deceit. We could be the most faithful, we could be the most service-oriented, we could be the one that stands alone in the gap But if we have neglected our personal relationship with the Lord, it isn't what brings pleasure to the Lord. What we do for the Lord, what we do on behalf of the Lord, can never become a substitute for our actual love relationship with the Lord. Now, it's very important that we understand that and we hear that. What we do can never be a substitute for our actual love relationship with the Lord. So the issue here is not what they're doing for the Lord. The issue is our primary affection. As Jesus rebukes the church at Ephesus, it is almost as if He is identifying a deadly cancer that is growing inside them despite the outward I remember reading a book by Charles Swindoll, and he told the story that at his university, students for years and years, decades and decades, decades would gather under this humongous oak tree that would shed its shade all over the courtyard area, and for years and years, people would gather together and sit underneath this tree and enjoy its beauty and the shade that it provided, And one day during the storm, there was a mighty crack that was heard all around the campus, and the mighty oak had fallen. And when they gathered to evaluate the tree, despite the beauty of its outward appearance, it was clear that internally there was a disease that was eating at the heart of this massive tree, and it ultimately brought about its downfall. So this orthodox duty, this mechanical religion, this process of going through the motions where there's lots and lots of activity with little love relationship to back it up is unsatisfactory to the Lord. So the question is this, what is first love? What does it mean to possess a first love? Well, Jesus would say, In Mark chapter 12, verses 29 to 30, the foremost commandment is this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. It is an affectionate, personal, intellectual, intentional, absolute, comprehensive, all-consuming love. Sometimes we say I love the Lord and it really isn't very different from when we say I love pizza or I love my dog or I love going to the beach or I love my new car. Can we really say that we love the things of this world differently than we love the Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior of our souls? The Lord requires... The Lord is deserving of a completely different kind of love. Luke fourteen, twenty six, Jesus would say, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciples. Now Jesus was not teaching that we are to hate our families, that we are to hate our siblings, we are to hate even our own lives. But the contrast is this. As much as we love our families, as, a, as much as we love our siblings, as much as we love one another, it is like hatred when it is compared to how much we love the Lord. Our love for Him is to be completely different than our love for anything or anyone else. So what does a loss of love actually look like? Well, A loss of love means there's little regard for time in His Word. There's little interest to allow God to speak to us through His Word. There's little motivation to spend time with Him in prayer. We're too busy, we're too tired, we're too distracted. There's little concern over sin that is creeping into our lives. There's little consideration given to the need for continuing transformation. There is a growing self-satisfaction a growing self-righteousness, a growing self-rule that simply brings Jesus along for the ride as opposed to letting Jesus dictate how we live our lives and what it is that we do. This is what has crept into the church at Ephesus despite all of the good things that they were doing. Now this brings us to Roman numeral 4 as we see his instruction We see his instruction in the very first part of verse 5. It says, Therefore remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first. So there's three actions that we must take that if we are to make movement towards regaining what we have left as our first love. The first thing that we do is we are to remember. We are to remember letter A. Who he is. He's not just a good man. He's not just a good teacher. He's not just one who would radically change the culture. He is the Son of God. He is the Savior of the universe. He is the very person of God. He is the one who has left his place in heaven and has come into the world that he created and become a sacrifice so that you and I could be saved from our hopeless state of sin be made the children of God, and be able to go into heaven with Him for all of eternity. We remember who He is. Let it be, we remember what it is He has done. Every time we think about the cross, every time we see the cross, every time we sing about the cross, it ought to penetrate deep into our hearts as a reminder of the great sacrifice that was made on our behalf, that sacrifice that we could not earn, that sacrifice that we did not deserve, and the only means by which we could ever be saved. This is what Jesus, the one who holds the lampstands, the one who is worthy of and deserving of of our love. This is who He is. This is what He has done. Let her see. We are to remember our earlier devotion. What is it that made us absolutely and completely desperate? For Christ. Now, for those that have grown up in a Christian home and really can't identify a radical life of rebellion or a life that was devoid of the knowledge of God or a consciousness of God, this might be a little bit different for one who was saved out of life. Of sin, One who was a pagan. One who was a heathen. One who knew nothing about God and cared nothing about God and lived his life as a self-willed evil individual and one day was radically made aware of the love and the grace of God through Christ and gave himself to Christ as a sacrifice and as a commitment. What is it that made you desperate for him? Remember that desperation. Remember the devotion that you had as you recognized that Jesus was the solution for all that you need. That Jesus was going to love you like nobody else could. That Jesus was going to love you like nobody else has. That He was going to save you from the death of your sin and make you His child and give Himself up on the cross. What was it that made you ready to lose your life to follow the King? How long has it been since we have felt that way about Jesus where we were desperate for Him and willing to lose our lives to follow Him? Well, if we are going to regain our first love, we have to remember these things. Secondly, in this instruction, repent. Now, I'll be honest with you, repent is a pretty unpopular term in many many modern churches today because the thrust of their message is You are great the way you are and God wants to continually bless you and He wants to fulfill your every wish and desire and dream and He wants to make you healthy and He wants to make you wealthy and all you need to do is pursue God so that you can fulfill His destiny for your life and be the best you that you can be. And there's no talk about repentance. There's no talk about sin. There's no talk about judgment. But here Jesus says, repent that word repent very clearly means to turn away from to visually perform a 180 degree change of course from the things of the world from our sinful place to him we are to repent we are to repent we are to repent from that way of thinking that allows us to take Jesus for granted and just simply pull out His presence and His love and His grace and His mercy in a time of need as opposed to it dominating the lives that we live. We are to repent from that which makes us lose sight of His worth. Now I can ask... Every professing Christian the same question and almost always hear the same answer. Is Jesus worthy of our highest love? Is He worthy of our greatest devotion? And, and almost everybody would say, yes, He is. But we very often lose sight of His worth and we forget who He is and what He's done. We're to repent from those things that dull our appetite for the Bible, books and movies and music and friends and leisure all of these things that can dull our need, our desire for the Bible. Repent from the things that steal away from us the time that we have for prayer. Maybe we don't need to work 12-hour days. Maybe we don't need to go to the golf course with every waking moment. Maybe we don't need to sit in front of the TV as often as we do. Maybe we just need to make a commitment to get up earlier, to stay up later, to cut something out of our life so that we can give to the Lord this time of prayer that he desires and we so desperately need. We are to repent from the pride and self-reliance that keeps us from relying upon him. The message is very clear to the church today, just as it was to the church in the time John received this vision. The message is repent. How long has it been since we felt the holiness of God exposing all our selfishness and all the moral filth in our souls? How long has it been since we sensed the weight of divine displeasure in the lives that we live? How long has it been since we felt the weight of all our guilt that has been forgiven and have we given thanks to him for the cleansing that we have received? You see, we cannot allow the external appearance of goodness to desensitize us to our ongoing need of cleansing and transformation made possible by the blood of Christ. You may have the friendship of hundreds of Christians and the admiration and the accolades of all who know you and slap you on the back and thank you for the great Christian example that you are, but if you have left your first love, if you have neglected the personal relationship with Jesus Christ, in spite of all the good that people see in your life, you need to repent. I need to repent of these things that become a substitute for this intimate relationship with Christ. Now the third thing that we see in this instruction that Jesus gives is the command to return. Repent from and return. Return to the things We did at first. Now that word things shouldn't be misunderstood as activity. But it is the things that we did to cultivate and develop and prioritize our relationship with Christ. The things people do when their minds and their hearts are dominated by overwhelming devotion to the Lord. Now what most people can relate to is that which took place when they fell in love with the person that they would marry, and they got engaged. Their entire life was consumed with this engagement. Isn't that right? You think about the wedding, you think about all the details of the wedding, you think about what's going to happen after the wedding, you think about the person you're going to marry, and your palms get sweaty and your stomach is uneasy, and you think about all the great things that are going to be a part of marriage. You are absolutely consumed by... And this is the idea. The idea is that we are to be absolutely consumed by the person of Christ, by what it is He has done for us. We are to repent from and turn to these things that will cultivate our relationship with Him. Acts 3.19 says this, Therefore repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of of the Lord. I wonder how often we feel the presence of the Lord when we're so busy doing and we haven't loved Him. When we're so busy struggling but we haven't loved Him. We're so busy enduring but we haven't loved Him. You see, the benefit of this relationship with God is that we experience the presence of the Lord while we are serving Him, which gives us joy and peace and a greater understanding of how much we actually need Him. So repent and return so that our souls will be refreshed as we experience the personal relationship we have with the Lord. Now, number five in our outline is His warning. Now, as we look at the warning, it's in the latter part of verse five. We've seen this instruction to repent. So the warning is, repent or else I am coming to you, And will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Now, I want to notice three things about this warning. The first one is this. It is a personal warning. Jesus says, I am coming. Jesus himself. The one who is already walking in the midst of the church the one who is holding the lampstands in His hand. This is stated in the present tense as if He is already on the way. He Himself is going to come. He's not going to send a storm, not going to send some kind of a circumstance, but He is going to come, and when He comes, it's not going to be good. So it is a personal warning. Number two, it is a certain warning. It isn't like this meaningless threat that a parent gives a child when he says, if you disobey, I'm going to put you in timeout." One, two, two and a half, two and three quarters. Now, wait a minute, Johnny, I'm really serious. I want you to go to the corner. One. Two And that cycle gets repeated over and over. It's a meaningless threat. It's a bark with no bite. But the warning that Jesus gives the church at Ephesus and the warning that Jesus gives all churches is this. It is a certain warning. He's already on the way. The warning is that I will remove the lampstand. Not snuff it out. Not dim its influence. But remove it. No longer sustain you, no longer bless you, no longer protect you. And the outcome of this coming is the eventual extinction of this body of believers. He will come in judgment, and when He comes, He will remove the lampstand. It's not a loss of salvation, it means that this local body of believers will cease to exist. Do you know churches that have locked their doors? Do you know churches who once had the outward appearance of a thriving ministry that was making a huge difference in the world? And have you wondered why and how their doors could have been locked? Why the ministries disappeared? Why the people scattered away? Perhaps it's because they left their first love and they were unwilling to repent and the Lord came in judgment. So, as we look at this warning, the third thing that we need to see is this. It is a conditional warning. The book is not closed. The issue has not been determined. Jesus says, repent and return. Unless you do these things, I am coming to you, therefore repent. Repentance changes Everything. It stops his movement towards judgment and it engages his children, his church, in the process of confession and repentance and restoration. And it completely changes what is taking place within the life of the church as it re embraces, as it recultivates a love relationship with the Lord. The love and the grace and the forgiveness of Christ allows us continual second chances. And with this stern warning, it appears the time is coming when the church will either repent or it will be removed. It is the church's response that will determine what the Lord will do. So it's good to know that there is a second chance, there is an option, that this has not been finalized, but we must listen to what it is he has said and repent. Now, number six in our outline is his encouragement. Verse six, we've seen his commendation, we've seen his rebuke, we've seen his warning, we look now at his encouragement. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans which I also hate. So his encouragement here is for maintaining moral purity. Now the the Nicolaitans, who they were is not quite clear. There isn't an absolute way to track that back within the New Testament to say with great consistency or accuracy who this was and what the teachings were. It's possible that this refers to Nicholas that is mentioned in in Acts chapter 6 who is known to be a was known to be a promiscuous group. They had little regard for morality, and so Nicholas, the teacher of the Nicolaitans, was being touted as apostle-approved, which was perhaps how the Ephesian church was able to discern that he was a false teacher, and they rejected the lifestyle that he portrayed and encouraged. But this teaching had not yet infiltrated The Ephesian church. So it's kind of interesting that there is this encouragement that comes for maintaining moral purity, and many believe that this is the other side of the coin with the warning that Jesus has given. It seems to indicate this that when our first love isn't what it should be, and we refuse to repent and return back to Him, it's only a matter of time before the moral collapse will come. Perhaps one of the reasons that churches have closed their doors is because of the moral failure of those who were called to be the leaders. Perhaps it's because the church itself knew of this immorality and was unwilling to take a stand and do anything about it. Perhaps it was the church itself liked the teaching and wanted to diminish the standard of God's Word and follow a teaching that pleased their sinful flesh and they did what they wanted to do. Well, there is this warning here that is connected somehow to this immorality that would potentially come as a lack of recultivating this first love. But in the meantime, they haven't compromised their morality. but it appears that this may be the next step for them unless they repent and return to the Lord. Lastly, in our outline, we see His promise. Verse 7, He who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. So we know from our studies in the Gospel, anytime Jesus says, To him who has an ear, let him hear. He isn't talking about the physical ear that 99.9% of all humans possess. He's talking about the spiritual ear that will listen with great intentionality and with honesty and sincerity to the words that he has spoken. And so we're to take very seriously these words that Jesus has spoken. So as we look at this promise, there is something that precedes this promise before it's given. Number one, we see that this, there is an appeal. The appeal is to listen. Don't ignore. Don't reject. Don't dismiss what I've said. Listen closely and evaluate yourself. Ask the Lord to reveal to you what it is you love most. Ask the Lord to reveal to you the sin that you tolerate. Secondly, in this, um, before the promise is given, we see that this is from Christ himself. Jesus is the one who gives this promise. He says, excuse me, this is the message of the Spirit. It's not from a man, it's not from a pastor, it's not from a teacher, it's not a quaint saying, but this is the Lord Himself in the person of the Holy Spirit of God that is speaking. And thirdly, He is speaking to all churches. Now, most specifically, the seven churches that are listed in Revelation one But because this is the eternal Word of God, this message is for all churches for all time. So there is this appeal from Christ Himself to all the churches to listen to what it is He has said. And here's the promise that He makes. To Him who overcomes, which is to all true believers. Make no mistake about it, churches today are filled with people who say the right things but are not authentically the children of God. They can talk the talk But they don't walk the walk. They know all the Christian cliches. They know the catchphrases. They know all the common and current words to indicate that there's some connection to Christ. But there is this expectation to Him who overcomes, which is indicative of those who truly believe. Those who overcome are those who endure to the end. They never walk away. They never deny Christ. They are faithful to Him To the very end. In 1 John 5, 4 and 5, we read this. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Now belief here is not intellectual. It is affectionate. It is emotional. It is a part of our conscious will. That we choose to love him and live for him and give ourselves to him. So, the encouragement is this we are already overcomers because we are the children of God. We now must live like the overcomers that we are. We do this by loving him deeply, by repenting of any known sin, by giving our hearts to him daily in prayer. These things are not true of false believers. They will not overcome. They will be separated from him when they stand before him, when he judges the world. And here at last is the great promise that they will eat of the tree of life, which is an indicator that they possess eternal life. This is first mentioned, this tree of life, in Genesis chapter 3. It is lastly mentioned in Revelation 22. And the location of this tree of life is none other than the paradise of God or heaven itself. This blessed experience to eat of the tree of life, to reside in the paradise of God is not reserved for a special group of Christians, but it is the normal expectation for all Christians. The privileges that were once lost by Adam and Eve have been regained for us by Christ so that we can spend an eternity with God in heaven experiencing the full glory and the full majesty and the full holiness of God without any hint or any presence of sin. This is the encouragement to true love that reminds us again of God's gracious provision for salvation. Love of God is not expressed by legalistically observing his commands or by dutifully serving him, but by responding to one's knowledge of God's love with an unwavering and an unmatched affection. It is to repent from empty deeds in service to him and to return to developing and cultivating a love relationship with Christ. So have you left your first love? Do you love Him now the same way you did at first? Is there anything in your life that God would reveal to you that you love more than you love Him? Our response is to repent. It is to repent from these things that have become a substitute for Christ. It is to return to Him in our personal relationship. And in doing so, we will be refreshed in our spirit. And we will find Jesus commending us, not only of what it is we do in service to him, but how we have loved him with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and with all our strength. Would you pray with me, please?